gambling is set up for you to lose. Where are the prettiest, beautifulest hotels in America? They're all in Las, Las Vegas. How they build those crazy hotels? The answer is on dummies like you. On dummies that are dumb enough to think, oh wow, this is unbelievable. This hotel is incredible. They even they even gave me a limousine ride for free from the airport to my hotel room. And they gave me the room for free. This is fantastic. No, it's not fantastic. No one does anything for free. And they gave you that room for free because they know it's, they'll, they'll let you keep your $300 and lose 30000 so this, the whole industry is set up for you to lose. That's why all the opening deals are crazy because they're set up to kill you. 6.6 .6 million people in America are struggling with gambling addiction and a growing number are betting on sports. What happened exactly? Well, in 2018, the Supreme Court cut down a 1992 federal law that limited sports betting primarily to Nevada. Now gambling's in the office, it's in our cars, it's on our phones, it's in our homes, it's in our bedrooms, it's everywhere. You turn on the TV, you turn on YouTube, you turn on practically any media network, and there are ads encouraging you to bet on sports. Does this have to be the unfortunate next addiction? How prevalent is it, and what are some of the traps we should be aware of? And we had a dynamic duo visit the Kosher Money studio. First up, Rabbi Joey Haber joined us. He's an energetic, insightful rabbi who inspires and teaches thousands and thousands of people within his Brooklyn and Deal communities and across the web and world on Torah Anytime. He's the head rabbi of Mag and David Synagogue, and he runs the Kesher organization, which helps boys and girls within his community post high school. Really incredible person. We had him up first, and then we spoke with David Cohn, a new city-based therapist who deals with addiction behaviors. He's a, he's a real maven when it comes to this from a professional level. He helps people and their families go through those challenges. And many times he sees gambling behaviors, compulsive spending, overgiving. Yes, that's a thing and more. Let's dig into these back-to-back -back interviews and get to the bottom of this. Enjoy. Being a Jew, awesome. Managing personal finances, not so awesome. Welcome to Kosher Money. Growing up, when you thought of betting, it was limited to Las Vegas, Nevada, right? You had to go in person. In 2022, after four years ago, 2023, five years ago, the last few years, it's been everywhere. You can't listen to the radio without hearing an ad from DraftKings. Every football game you watch, they try to lure you in with some sort of free credit. And the stats show that 2% of Americans are addicted to gambling. I don't know how that translates into the Orthodox Jewish world, but there are people suffering and there are traps set out for all kinds of people, ourselves included. What are you seeing out there? Is this is this something that you're passionate about? Is this something that we need to start talking about? What do people that may not be familiar with the the traps of gambling, the addiction of gambling, what should they know? Okay, so again, that's a great question. I would start by saying this. There's a part of the firm community that's luckily completely removed from this. That means the part of the firm community that never put down a dollar, never ever gambled in their life, uh, don't even understand it, don't get it, don't know what, the, what a bookie is, don't know what a spread is, don't know what an over-under is. 
and they they should realize that they're very lucky. And it's a shame sometimes, you know, as as Torah Jews, there's so much beauty in our lifestyle that we don't appreciate because we don't realize what the alternative is. Mm. So I think anyone who this is irrelevant to should consider themselves incredibly blessed. But at the same time, to a large portion of the Orthodox Jewish community, there this is a big challenge. In fact, someone just told me the other night he was at a Yeshiva League game. Some the Yeshiva League in Fly, in Fly, Brooklyn is bunch of schools high schools that play against each other he says he was sitting in the stands watching the game mm-hmm. you know maybe his nephew was on the team and he heard two guys behind him saying i got this kid the over under is is 14 points i got i have the spread on this school winning but he says one second you guys are betting on this these two high schools they bet on everything mm-hmm. literally there are kids out there young adults out there that are betting on everything now it might be small money but betting is like all over the place. So what, where it's relevant, it's rampant. Mm. Where it's irrelevant, you're lucky. But where it's relevant, it's rampant. And I think every person who's in the type of household where this is a possibility, I think there needs to be an, a tremendous amount of understanding from the parent's standpoint and then from the young people's standpoint about what this is and what the dangers are. We spoke to a professional because we had a fear of talking about this that if we talk about it it's basically a free ad for gambling and it's awareness and people are going to say wow i didn't know that in the beginning i just need five bucks to make 200 and like we don't want people to know that and then we spoke to professionally he said no there's no there's no science that shows there's no data that shows talking about it will actually lure people in there's there's more good than harm in in having a conversation like this i think we'd be remiss to say how technology right we talk about technological addictions and things of that nature it's as easy as downloading an app no one's doing it necessarily in the beginning because they are being malicious about it they're doing it because you know carefree with some friends there's an app i can use a couple hundred bucks there's not like you know that first step into it is not necessarily a malicious one right so uh, yeah let me tell you a little story I, I used to teach in Magna David Yeshiva High School. And one day, uh, my, the kids came in. It was the day after the Super Bowl. And they said, Rabbi, you have to hear what happened. I said, what happened? I, maybe his kid's name was Beta. You have to hear what happened to Beta. Beta won, Beta's father won $3,000 on why on boxes. He had, I don't, let's say, I don't know what the numbers were. Maybe it was seven and three or something like that. And if someone doesn't understand, the way it works is you pick numbers and it's the last numbers of the of the score in the Super Bowl at the quarter, at, at, at the end of the first quarter, the halftime, whatever, you could get money. He won three grand. He put down $5 and he won $3,000. I said, boys, that's unbelievable. So cool. I said, well, let me tell you how this works. Okay? What happens is you'll have a person who does that. He puts, he gets, gets boxes five dollars for the boxes and he wins three thousand dollars and now he's like wow that's unbelievable so now he's got free money it's three thousand dollars he didn't do anything to get that money mm-hmm. so now march comes and he puts down uh three hundred dollars just three hundred dollars on a bracket and he takes a march man this bracket and he picks out the final four and he pits two ones a two and a three and he nails it Michigan hits a three-pointer to win the game, and they're a three-seed, and they make it into the Final Four, and he nails it. And he's like, wow, I am really good at this. Like, this is, this is fun, and I'm good at it. 
So then what happens is Abby's nothing's going on much in the summer. And then winter comes, he says, our friends are going to, they're going to, you know, we're going to start a little league and we're going to put down a thousand dollars a person. He's like, I got an extra thousand dollars anyhow for the money I want. So let me be join the league. And now next thing you know, he's look, he's addicted to it every week. And the fantasy is a whole conversation in itself. But, and then all of a sudden Thanksgiving comes and he says, you know what? Let's go to Vegas. We're all going, let's go into Vegas. The boys are going, let's go. So he goes to Las Vegas. He's got three, four thousand dollars free money, and he says, "Let me bet." And he starts betting, and it's a lot of fun because there's like an energy and there's a edge. And now he's putting down a thousand, and he's winning two thousand. He's putting on another. And he's winning. He comes home. He's like, "I have ten thousand dollars, and I don't even make a lot of money. I have ten thousand dollars. This is a crazy thing. This is so much fun." So now comes the Super Bowl again. He says, anyhow, this is easy. And he puts down money on the Super Bowl. And he says, you know what? I'm going to put down on the over-under. I'm going to put it on the spread. I'm going to put it on who's going to win. And, and he wins more. And now this feels crazy. He says, President's Weekend, I, we need to go away. He tells the boys, let's go to Atlantic City. Back then when you had to move around. He says, he goes to Atlantic City. And he bets $3,000. And he loses it. And he's like, nah, I don't lose. He says, March Madness is coming. I'm going to make it up. And he goes by bets with March Madness. And sure enough, he makes it up. He's like, you know what? I'm back. I'm back. I'm in. Next year, he starts working. Now he's making some real money. So now he says, I'm not betting one, two thousand dollars That was when I wasn't making a dollar. He says, you know, he tells the boys, let's go Thanksgiving. Let's go to Las Vegas. Let's bet 10 grand. He goes and he bets 10 grand. And he comes back with 20. And he just feels like, I am flying. I never felt this way in my life. In two nights, I made twenty. I made an extra $10,000. This is incredible. And now he gets starts dating. And he gets married. And he gets engaged. And now he's a little struggling in his life. And he's a little frustrated. Tells the boys, guys, we, I tell his wife, honey, I need a weekend. I want to go to, to the boys. We'll just go down. We'll go to you know, Atlantic City for a couple of days. We'll bet a little bit. It's not the end of the world. And he goes and he bets, and he loses $5,000. And he's like, this can't be. So now he gets another opportunity, and he says, we got to go again. And he bets a lot of money, and he loses it again. And he said, no, this doesn't make sense. So next time he goes to Las Vegas, and he starts winning. Five grand, ten grand. 20 grand because that's the numbers he's used to so now all of a sudden he's in and he has some money in his, and he has making a little bit of money so he kind of feels like he can and he deserves to so now all of a sudden he's making is also he's up 40,000 and he's like this is unbelievable I never felt this way in my whole life I have people around me they're all around the table they're all watching as this is happening and then and and, and I have 40 grand and I just, I'm a hero and he goes in and he bets double or nothing and he loses he's like there's no way I was up $40,000 20 minutes ago. There's no way I'm going home with nothing. So they say, okay, no problem. Double it again. And he loses again. And now he's down down $40,000. And he goes on the side. says, I have to daven Meyer right now. Because I need Hashem's help. And he goes and he davens with a transom out the covenant. And he bets again. And now all of a sudden he turns around. He's down $80,000. He doesn't know what to do. How this happened? He goes home. His wife says, what's wrong? He says, nothing. Eh, nothing. And he's just doing his thing. Two weeks later, he comes home, and the door is locked. And he knocks on the door, and no one's answering. And he says, one second, my wife's car's in the driveway. Why she's not answering? And he keeps knocking and knocking, till finally she opens up the door, and she opens the door. She says, get out! He's like, what are you talking about? She says, I saw what happened. I checked our savings account. I wanted to buy something, and there's nothing left. You went to Vegas, and you lost all of our savings. We were going to use that as a down payment for our house, and it's all gone, completely, all, entirely gone. Go home, go away, I don't want to see you. You ruined our life. And it started 
with one boxes in a Super Bowl because you had the seven and the three. The kids were in awe. A couple of months later, I said this story at a bake sale. We do this in the community. Back then, I used to speak at them. Bake sale where you have like a fundraiser. And I was speaking. And because I was like on a small room, so they had a hookup. They had a video camera into the back room, let's say from the den to the living room. And there was a guy doing the whole thing. And after this year is over and everyone leaves, this person says to me, he says, how do you know? I said, what do you mean, how do you know? He says, how do you know? I said, what are you talking about? He says, how do you know that that's how it works? I said, I don't know. I know this, this has happened to a lot of people. He says to me, let me tell you my story. He said, for me, it started with a penny. One penny. He says, I was dating a girl, and I took her to Coney Island, and they had some kind of thing where you could put down a penny, and you double it. And then you keep doubling it. And you keep doubling it. And so you think, double a penny, double it, double it, double it. How, how high is it going to be? He says, somehow I lost $160 in that night, starting with a penny. He says, it's hard to explain to you the whole story. He says, but I had to get married 10 years later than I wanted to because of the incredible debt that I amassed just because of that penny. So gambling is set up for you to lose. Where are the prettiest, beautifulest hotels in America? They're all in Las Vegas. How they build those crazy hotels? The answer is on dummies like you. On dummies that are dumb enough to think, oh wow, this is unbelievable. This hotel is incredible. They even they even gave me a limousine ride for free from the airport to my hotel room. And they gave me the room for free. This is fantastic. No, it's not fantastic. No one does anything for free. They gave you that room for free because they know it's, they'll let you keep your $300 and lose 30000 so this, the whole industry is set up for you to lose. That's why all the opening deals are crazy because they're set up to kill you. That's how they want it. That's how they make money. And they make it incredible numbers. Do you realize that gambling has become, sports betting has become legal in America in the last year? Excuse me, legal in New York in the last year. Do you know that they have to pay, I believe it's 50% taxes? What kind of business would open up that has to give away 50% of their earnings to taxes? I'll tell you what kind. One that knows that they're going to win every day and four times on Sunday. Mm -hmm. A business that knows that they are going to have you, they're going to grip you by your feet, and you're never going to be able to let go. That's the kind. So what gambling is doing is is so above and above your head. And you have a 15-year-old kid who says, oh, this is so cool. I could put down a few dollars on whether the Knicks win tonight. This is fun. He has no idea the, the claws that are behind that $7 that he put on how many points the Knicks are going to win the game by. It's scary. It's scary to hear it because you painted a slow but growing picture of how innocent it was the day Excuse one. me for taking so many details, but no, that's kind of what happens. Why Each step important. makes sense yeah. until it just, it hits you. In fact, now I mentioned fancy before. You know, again, I, Rabbi in a pretty modern community, and we love them to pieces. But anytime I meet a young adult now, I don't ask him, do you have a fancy team? I ask him, how many do you have? <laughs> because so many of them have two and three teams. And they're spending, forget about just the money of it. You just are donating September, October, November, and December, and somehow you're going to come up with some new league for January that you're just giving away. 
Because you think, oh no, it's just fancy, it's just fun. I put down $200 or $500 for my team, it's just fun. No, it's not fun. It consumes you the whole day Sunday. You're worrying about it all day Monday because you have one running back and one receiver in the game playing against each other tonight. So you're nervous the whole week. Then all of a sudden you lose on Monday night by three points. All week you're like, I started the wrong guy. I got to start the right quarterback this week. He's playing against a weak defense. I'm going to do it. You're making trades. You're benching plays. You watch ESPN, Bleacher Report. You have 100 things you're following. Now Thursday night you get started again. And they could see you. The NFL is such a genius. They could put the dumbest game on on Thursday night. But there's so many people going to watch because I have their defense. So I have to follow exactly what they're doing. And then I'm nervous all weekend. You're consumed. And and 90% chance you're going to lose. Do you know that? 90% chance you're going to lose? That That's the number. There's 10 teams in your league. 90% chance you're going to No, no, but I have the best quarterback. Who says... Two weeks later, the guy gets injured and you're stuck. 90% chance you're going to lose. And you're spending four months on 90% chance of losing, a 10% chance of winning $3,000. Work hard. You'll make way more than that $3,000 by just being focused. Let's talk about how the Yatesahara works. And I know you have a a muscle of, you know, the different stages of how that works. And by the end... So what we described to you before... Um, is really in essence a Gemara. The Gemara in Sukkah famously says that the Yetzir Hara is, is called a Mehalech, a passerby, mm-hmm. a Oreach, a guest, and a Ish, a master. So the Gemara says, here's how it works. First, he's just a passerby. Just quick boxes. You don't even know anything about sports, just quick boxes. And the next, you know, he becomes a guest. Where a couple of times a year, you're going and you're gambling on purpose. And next thing you know, he becomes Ish. He owns you and he's controlling you. Most kids that start fantasy start it for free. Mm-hmm. Just a cute little thing, fourth grade. We'll play it for free, just a bunch of friends. And next thing you know, you're in $5,000 a pop league and you're in three different leagues and you're a grown man with, man with two, three kids. So it goes rapidly. And really, that's the Yetzirah with everything. It's the Yetzirah when it comes to smoking. Has anyone? Why would anyone in his right mind smoke a pack of cigarettes a day and, and take off 10 years of his life? The answer is, he was in his right mind. It just started as a guest. This is how it works with drinking. Guy says, now nah, I'm just going to go to Kiddush Club quick. Just the boys are having a drink and everyone's drinking. Why am I going to be the only guy who doesn't drink? You think I'm the only weird guy who doesn't drink? I'll take a drink. And next thing you know, it becomes a guest and it owns you. It's the same thing with internet addiction. No one ever bought a smartphone saying, I want to do crazy things. I want to stand, give my whole life to this one, you know, half a foot device. What happens is they just say, let me get it because like I want Waze and it has a sitter on it and it just makes things a little bit easy and it's Amazon, I can buy things and next thing you know, it grips you. Every single Yetzir Hara, what you need to worry about is the opening. Is when you have the fancy team for free, when you put down the first five dollars on boxes, when you take the first leg, when you first cigarette, when you take the first, when you take the first drink, that's where the danger is. Because once you're down the road, it's very, very difficult to stop. So there's a famous Gemara in Sukkah that says, very famous. Everyone talks about it, about the Yetzirah. The Gemara says that the Yetzirah, when the one day when the Yetzirah is going to be slaughtered and everyone's going to cry. The Sadiqim are going to cry because the Yetzirah is going to look to them like a mountain. And the Rishayim are going to cry because the Yetzirah is going to look to them like a hare. This question is, what does that mean? How, why is the Yetzirah looking like a hare to a Russia and looking like a mountain to a Sadiq? It's the opposite. 
It should be, if anything, it should be the opposite. The answer is this, is that we're showing both of them what they didn't, excuse me, don't worry, we can take this part out so you'll just right. the, the answer is we're showing both of them what they didn't know. And that is you, Sadiq, you said when you were young, you were five, ten years old, you said, nah, I don't want to try that cigarette. I'm not going to get involved in that. You had no idea that had you said yes, it would turn into a mountain from a passerby to a guest to owning you, to all of a sudden $80,000 in debt because of your gambling problem. You never even realized that because you never let it in the door. So we're telling you, you know what could have been? It could have become a mountain had you let it in. And to the Rasha, we're showing him the opposite. You comes up to Shemaim and he tells Hashem, the Yitzhara was enormous. I couldn't, you know what it was like? I couldn't sleep at night until I figured out how to the next bet. And I couldn't even function until I had a drink. And you know why I smoked? Because what was I supposed to do? It's so much stress. I couldn't even go an hour without smoking. It wasn't even feasible. And Hashem says, you know why that happened? That happened because you let him in. Initially, it was just a hair. If you flicked it away in the beginning... You never would have dealt with that mountain. You never would have been gripped like you were. So all you had to do was flick away the hair initially, and it never would have become what it became. So to the evil person, we show him what it was in the beginning. To show him you could have saved yourself so much, so much annoyance and so much frustration and so much anxiety if you realize when it was a hair to get rid of it. And to the sadiq, to the righteous person, we show him, you think that it was easy. It wasn't so hard. I never cared about a drink. We're showing him that you know what? Had you brought it into your life, it would have become a mountain that you could almost could almost be impossible to overcome. So we're showing each one what it could have been. Growing up, my mother used to call cigarettes cancer sticks. So I feel like she took me straight up to the mountain and said, look, exactly. look this is what, this is what it is. And getting back to how we started this, I think families need to understand it. If a father or a mother knows that some kind of addiction is uh, knows that some kind of addiction is happening in their home, and the kid is just dabbling in something, don't lose your mind. Because if you lose your mind, your kid's just gonna say, "You don't know. You don't get it." Understand it and understand how this grows. And in some cases, if you could stop it and kick that yeshara out the door, please do so. And in other cases, if you can't stop it then at least monitor it, understand where this is headed and know where the trajectory is. And if you know that, then maybe at least you can make sure that they're not part of that percent that gets gripped. It's hard. Once it gets started, it's really hard to control it. But I would say, and I feel this really about, maybe one day we could talk about raising children as a whole other conversation, but I think if a parent wants to resonate with their children, they need to understand their children. And if you're going to try to take away something from them or try to minimize something that they really like, I think you need to balance it with something cool on the other side. So if you're the kind of family that is very comfortable with sports and you watch sports, let's say if that's the kind of family you are, because many people listening to this are not like that at all. But if you are like that and you watch sports and now all of a sudden you find your son getting into gambling, I, I wouldn't just say, stop this, this is terrible. Or behavior said it's going to turn into a mountain. Instead, I would tell my son, I'd say, listen, here's the deal. You don't, you, don't, um, you don't get involved in the gambling at all. You put down the money, and I'm going to get you a luxury suite to a giant game. Mm. So now, all of a sudden, you're relevant. 
and I think it's very important as a parent that if you're going to have the conversation, don't just be all about no. You have to be about somehow replacing it with a yes. And the yes is not, oh, it's so geschmack. I'm going to take you to the candy store. Or we're going to, the Rebbe said we should learn. No, no, get it. Understand what the kid cares about and find a way to replace it with something that resonates in the lifestyle that he's in. Because otherwise you're going to be irrelevant. Even if it's not a luxury suite, it could be two tickets to the same game, right? It may not be a luxury suite. My point is something that the kid says, you know what, wow. Yeah, I don't care about this now. Especially when you're in the initial stages, the kid's not so attached to it. Mm-hmm. So it's not so hard for him to let go. Once he's gripped, you're not going to have the conversation. It's going to be much harder. But initially, when he's just dabbling into it, and you say, listen, if you make, make a deal the whole season, maybe I'll take you out for dinner and I'll take you to, again, whatever your family style. And, you know, there's a lot of families from families that wouldn't don't get involved in sports at all, would definitely never go to a ball game. And and like I said, that's if you could live with that kind of kedushah and that kind of tahara, you're unbelievably lucky and you're unbelievably blessed and that's the ideal way to live. But if you're not living that way and you're exposing your son to sports and following it and all that and now all of a sudden he starts to gamble and then you're getting nervous at that, you have to replace it with something. What's your message to those who are gripped by it that fell into it and maybe we'll bring on a, a health professional to talk about the actual tactics one can use to to get themselves out of it but if someone did approach you from your community or any community and says hey this is where i am i'm stuck i need help what what would be your um encouraging message to either get them to have that conversation or what would your advice be to them my advice would be to them don't be scared by the fact that you have a problem to me one of the challenges we have in the firm community is that we're afraid of problems because maybe my kid's not going to get married you're allowed to need help. It's okay to ask for help. You're, you're already a courageous person if you're standing up and acknowledging, I have a problem and I need to change it. You're already incredible. And you say, no, 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 I'm such a terrible person. I can't believe I'm in this. No, no, no. This world is about falling and getting back up. Many people have fell. Torah is full of examples of great people that fell. Even though they fell on their level and not on our level, but the Torah gives us the stories in simple ways. Not because the story is simple. The story is way deeper than it looks. But it's given to us in a simple way so that the lesson would resonate with us simple people. So when you see Yosef and Mitzrayim and he almost is pulled by the wife of Potiphar, of course there were a hundred reasons that are such higher level than we can ever imagine. But the Torah doesn't give us all those reasons. It gives us this pashut, simple pashup shot has been in order for you to say, I understand that challenge. So when a person has a challenge, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with you if you have an addictive personality. It's just like there's nothing wrong with you if you have a mental health problem. There's nothing wrong with you if you're ready to get up and do the work, whether it's go through therapy, whether it's do certain changes in your life, then you're incredible. And our great people, in many cases, were people who overcame those challenges. So don't think that, oh, I'm the worst. You're not the worst. Get up. Pick yourself up, dust off your pants, have the courage and the focus and the energy to do what you need to do about it. So don't be scared of yourself and don't be embarrassed of yourself. Do something about it. And that'll be your proudest part of your life. Because fast forward five years from now, when you overcome this and you're in that realm for a few years, you'll look back and you'll say, there's nothing greater I ever achieved than being able to change something that I was falling with. 
eye-opening, riveting, and hopefully very helpful to many of the people um, that this message resonates with. Rabbi Haber, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be right back to this week's episode, but first, a message from Kolal Chabad. If you are a listener to Kosher Money, you are familiar with Kolal Chabad. More and more of you are getting in on the action. You want real action, real wins. Charity to Kolal Chabad is the way to go. They are helping Israel's neediest together with the Israeli government. So if you have $10 lying around, if you can make an $18 donation, support Kolal Chabad, kolalchabad.org slash kosher money. Kolal Chabad did not even sponsor this episode. Do you know who did? An anonymous businessman deep in California is very passionate about Kolal Chabad. He is trying to get the word out and the money that is donated is far beyond any sponsorship. Um, People are literally giving because of this endeavor thousands and thousands of dollars to a worthy organization. It's a Romer Balanes organization. Um, Those familiar with Romer Balanes know that this spans centuries. I think they were started in 1788. Correct me if I'm wrong. So if you want to help Israel's neediest, people who need food, shelter, clothing, smiles, please visit kolachabad.org slash kosher money. And now back to this week's episode. We're going to continue the conversation. Rabbi Joey Haber was phenomenal. And now we're bringing in someone who deals with this on a professional, in a clinical setting. We have David Cohn with us. How do you describe what you do? What do you do day to day? Tell us about yourself. Okay, so it's a pleasure to be here, first of all. Thanks for having me. I am a licensed clinical social worker, uh, the title LCSW, and I'm also an addictions counselor. I have a full-time private practice where I live in New City, the Muncie area, and I am also the uh, director of clinical operations for an organization called Ray of Hope. Uh, They provide professionally facilitated support groups for survivors of sexual abuse. So I'm busy between my private practice and this organization. Right, Thanks and we and we love people who come on that have a, a good understanding of 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 the topic more so than trying to reach out to someone and say, "Hey, do a lot of research on this." The, you you sort of live and breathe this stuff. Yeah. Um, the conversation with Rabbi Haber was very focused on sports gambling, and we're recording this ahead of the Super Bowl, and it's really just relevant across every month of the year there are all these commercials and the proliferation of technology apps everywhere yeah um tell me about sports gambling is that very prevalent in our communities orthodox jewish communities is is it more just more prevalent everywhere what comes to mind yeah so in terms of like literal prevalence like numbers like statistics i don't know in general in the from in the orthodox communities we don't really have numbers for lots of things um so we can sort of conjecture about that um i i suspect that it's not as high of a number as it is within the larger secular world simply because um it is a a bit of a more sheltered lifestyle again depending on which particular segment of the orthodox community we're talking about but as you said the sports betting is ubiquitous it's everywhere right so if you have a smartphone there's thousands i I was going to say hundreds but it's probably more than hundreds of apps that are all devoted to sports betting and of any type of sport um 
and um, including major sports organizations that in the past would never get involved with gambling. And now, like everybody, it's just gone mainstream. Gambling has gone mainstream. So <clears throat> it's on social media. You can get it through any social media app. You can access uh, any of a plethora of uh, access points in um, websites, commercials. Uh, it's just all sports, celebrities. Um, it's everywhere. So I think that there are so many different entry points in now through technology that have just not been there before. It used to, used to be in the past. You would have, if you were younger, a friend would expose you. You'd get involved. If you were older, you would see the, you know, the advertisements in the back of the, of the magazine or the newspaper that would you know, advertise the gambling services, but it's everywhere now. So how are people falling into it? Is it just because it's everywhere? So percentage-wise, if more people are seeing it, more people are falling into it, is that not enough of a reason for many people to fall into it and it takes a certain personality type? Who Who is falling into it and, and what sort of traps are, are they becoming victim of? Right. So there's who's falling into it, but I think before that we should talk about like who's being targeted. And I think the answer is everybody, um, including you know, relatively young children are being targeted. So there are like many, many games that are designed these days for kids, for teenagers, and even younger than than adolescents, um, where they're not actually putting down money, but they're like gambling type games, and there are many of them. Mm -hmm. And um, it's basically already creating the mindset of uh, the gambling-like activity. And then proponents of it will say, well, why is it any different than, you know, the board game Monopoly, mm -hmm. where you're playing with financial plays, you know? And it is possible to play some of those games responsibly. Um, and then the trick is, you know, what happens as kids grow up? At what point do they leap over into actually starting to put money down? And so... Um, we say that in the general population, approximately two to three percent of people are going to have very significant um, gambling addictions. That's not the technical term, the diagnostic term. We don't say gambling addiction, but like really disordered gambling, you know, pathological gambling behavior. Um, and then there is a small segment of people all the way at the other end that have not, no relationship to any sort of gambling behavior. But then the real concern because the people that have those significant gambling addictions are you know we we know about that right and so there are treatment programs that are targeting people like that and servicing people like that there's a very large range in between of people that are getting involved with gambling perhaps not to the point of problematic gambling and then from there another percentage of people that will cross over into that line of problematic gambling similar to drinking you can have somebody who's a total a teetotaler just doesn't have any relationship to alcohol at all. At the other end of the spectrum, you can have somebody who's got a significant, a severe alcoholism issue. But then you have a very significant percentage in between of people that do have a relationship with alcohol, including um, a percentage of people with a problematic relationship. So there, those are not people that, for example, the 12-step fellowship of Gamblers Anonymous, GA, yeah. that's not going to do, people, people are not typically going to do well. They're not going to be attracted. They're not going to think they fit in in those types of uh, treatment experiences, even though that's not formal treatment, that's self-help. Um, there, are The rehabs that are out there for people with um, gambling issues or alcohol issues are not designed to, to treat those significant, more significant percentage of people. It was a 40%, you know, 30% of that range. So so it is a bigger population that that really do need help of some sort. It doesn't mean that they can't get better without help. You know, one of the dirty uh, trade secrets in the world of addiction in general is that 
there are people over the course of their lifetime who have met criteria for a significant problem and then get better on their own without going for formal help. Um, but at what cost? You know, by the time they perhaps mature out of the behaviors that they were involved in, they may have experienced significant financial loss or lost a marriage or estrangement from kids, you know, um, of legal issues, all sorts of, of negative consequences as a result of their behaviors. The apps you reference that kids are playing, are you referring to blackjack and card games and, and gambling apps or even the, the games themselves, such as, you know, a, uh, a boy running through a, a street and jumping over trains and things of that nature that right. have... Um, where you buy in for tokens coins and, and exactly. things of that nature are you referring to yeah, those so as I'm, well? I'm referring to both you know and and not just the gambling apps where you're actually playing a gambling game like blackjack or whatever but there are so many other games that are just games but you have to buy in um or upgrade um and it's already training the mindset for kids that if you really want to get into something put in more into the game and you'll be able to to get further You'll be able to uh, advance further. You'll be able to have a higher standing in the game, whatever it may be. Um, these are, I remember many, many years ago reading um, a big article that Time Magazine had done about the gambling industry. And it, that was back in the days when gambling meant going to an actual physical casino in Vegas or Atlantic City, right? Um, today, there's so many other ways of just sitting at home and accessing. And they said that the, the technical term that the insiders in the industry use for people that gambling reg that gamble regularly is sucker. That's like the official term that's used. So there are people that are really, really good at this, at the marketing and at the designing that sit there and figure out how do we pull in young people and adults um, so that eventually it's profitable for us. I know when my kids are playing these games, they'll come over to me and say, hey, a pack of a thousand coins it's only a dollar ninety nine. Right. Can we buy it's it? Special. And maybe once or twice I got roped into it, but I started telling them that's how they get you, right? It's it's a trick, it's a trap. The games are only meant to encourage you to eventually buy things. I like the games where there's no in app purchases, which plenty of games right. don't have that option. It's all in app purchases. Right. Um, so there's a clear divide between monopoly and this routine that they're building within you especially on these technology apps which have very little oversight in terms of what gets approved that's right that's right and eventually i mean like like we have with um that company jewel with the vaping you know mm -hmm. eventually they might down the line there might be a lawsuit that proves that there was direct targeting towards you know people that are underage and that it was illegal think I'm, i won't be surprised if that happens down the line with certain very well-known games and apps um, but by the time that happens, literally millions of kids have been sucked in and been regular users. Look, I, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of just decrying the industry and the state of reality. I think that, um, you know, we could sit there and sort of wring our hands about what, what's going on with technology and how susceptible our children are to it. And, and the reality is that they are. I think it's just even more so, more than ever before, a call for us as parents to really develop a comfortability with having conversations with our kids about technology and about understanding the, the experiences that they're going to have, what they're going to be exposed to, um, to the extent that we as parents 
have standards and have a lifestyle where our kids will be exposed to whatever extent that they will be. And and even if it isn't with a smartphone or a tablet that they have at home, but they'll have a friend who has and they'll hear about it in school or on the playground. So, you know, I just think that that's where we need to put our strength and our energy is how do we start having those conversations with our kids? How do we develop a, a competence about this with ourselves? And our kids are always going to be a step a giant step ahead of us with technology and not to think that we will change that, you know, they will continue to be a step ahead of us, but we can, we can incorporate this into our parenting conversations. I think it's important. In addition to the conversations, do you see it being advisable for rabbis and and teachers and, and parents to establish some sort of system that A and B and C are off limits entirely? More, more so than just the conversation and hoping then the children trust you, but saying, hey, in our house, we don't allow third-party apps. You know, it's going to be a Game Boy, a Switch, uh, you know, a PlayStation, whatever it is that has a little bit more of a controlled environment. I'm assuming. I, I could be wrong on that. Yeah, but I'm, I'm smiling. That's wishful right. thinking. Oh, my gosh. My kids are ahead. Yeah. Um, but, like, are, are there tangible things that people can do? We're recording this in 2023, but I guess that aren't, platform specific mm-hmm. i take back the whole uh xbox thing because that there's a whole environment on, right. on that front as well but right. what are things parents can do that are bigger than just a conversation that helps them sleep better at night knowing their kids are protected right right so i think that it's it's a couple of things for parents it's the ability to have the conversations and that's not it's never a one-time conversation in the same way that if we're talking about raising um teaching our kids about the facts of life. It's not a one-time conversation. It's how do you have that conversation with a child um, on some level when they're three or four years old and then six and seven and then eight and nine and then 12 and 13 and et cetera. There's this, it's called an education, it's called scaffolding, where you revisit the same topic, another layer where they're developmentally now more sophisticated and you can add more information and more insight and more awareness. So we want to do that around these these topics as well. And I think besides that, we want to determine what is our, our, our standard that we're comfortable with in our home. And obviously, that's going to vary from community to community and home to home. Um, and then also included in the culture of the home is that it, there's transparency, right? So my, my kids, uh, when they're old enough and they have a phone, their phone is connected with mine. And I have the ability to go into my phone and see what's going on and what their usage is. And they know that I'm going to do that. Um, and I'm going to let them know, and we'll have a conversation about it together. In the same way that in the olden days, if my kid was just in their bedroom before technology and the door was closed, I can come in. I'm going to knock first. If my kid is an older kid, they should have that sense of privacy and boundaries. But my kid might be aware, okay, let's, let's, let's see what's going on in your life. Let's have a conversation about this. So transparency, having that as part of the culture that's in the home, that parents expect um, and and instill that in the home. I think that that's really key. But I think we have to be careful that if we sort of come up with a game plan, okay, it's never going to be this that's allowed, and it's only this, then my kid will be safe. So in other words, we need to have standards. And if this, it's perfectly okay to have a home where we just don't bring that kind of technology in, or our kids don't get to play with those kind of apps or those kind of devices, I think that's perfectly okay. Everyone needs to figure that out for themselves and with their Das Torah, et cetera. But the mistake that we might make is now we're safe. Now my kid is safe. That's a mistake. That um, our kids are going to be exposed one way or another. And um, 
So how do we how do we develop, like I said before, a, a comfortability with approaching our children and having conversations around that? There is this natural discomfort that parents have sometimes wanting to turn away and say, that's not such a comfortable question to ask. I'm not really sure I know what I'm going to do if I hear the answer to that. What am I going to, where am I going to go with that? What am I going to do with that? Try to kick that ball down the street, you know, kick that. What's the bucket? What, what's the expression for that? Um, and sort of like just avoid um, the conversation, avoid opening that door. And it's always better to face something, to have a conversation, and then to figure out who, who do I need to go to to maybe get a little bit of advice or a little bit of education about how to follow up on this with my child. And I think most yeshivas, most schools today are really trying very hard to partner with their parent body in being supportive and not just like punitive and saying, this is not okay and you can't have have this and then here's the consequence or the punishment for the child or the family. I know I've, I, I just have good experiences. The educators today, Rabbanim, Rabbeim, educators are well-intended, you know, like recognizing that parents need support. And so um, whatever initiative schools put in place in supporting parents and um you know, the filtering devices in the homes. I, I think that mo more importantly than even filtering devices is the transparency software, the account, what's typically known as accountability software, mm -hmm. where parents have the abilities to get the reports on what's been accessed on the computers and be able to see what's going on, not to sneak after the children, but to be able to, ha to the children should know. Everything that is installed, whether they are filtering the you know software and accountability, the children should know how th we are running our home and how we're approaching technology, why we do it this way, and um, and that's just a healthy way of approaching it, I think. And if the kid was to push back on the accountability, then is it okay saying no to the child? Like these are the rules, these are the standards. If you're not okay with it, we're we're not going to proceed on giving you that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't see why it's any different than, um, for example, driving, right? People tend to think, you know, driving is a right. Sometimes kids might think I get to a certain age, I have the right to drive. Legally, driving is considered a privilege in the legal system. It's not considered a right. It's not an inherent right that citizens have. You earn the right by learning how to drive and maintaining a good driving record and not messing that up. So I, I think that that's a good analogy to how we approach this. These are privileges. It's not an inherent right for a child to have a video game console or, right, you know. Right. Um, so um, Everyone else in my class has it, right? and they don't have accountability. Why are you giving it to me? Right, right, yeah. I, I, again, this is where parents have to make a determination of what's what am I comfortable with mm -hmm. and um, why. Why is this the standard that I have? Why, am I, why are we in, in this home not comfortable with something else? And uh, I've said this, these words to my own kids um, around certain topics. You know, this is how we do it in our home. You're part of this home. This mm -hmm. is how we do it. And it's not being apologetic about that. And being able to feel good about why I do it this way and then being able to impart that to my kids as well. We'll be right back to this week's episode of Kosher Money. But first, Shmuel Shaiwitz is here and we're going to get right into it mortgages, shopping for a mortgage, someone's ready to buy a house, they don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars, they, they, they need a bank to help to provide a good chunk of the uh, acquisition price. What should someone shopping for a mortgage know? And what are some of the myths out there? Very loaded question, a very important question. And I think in this market or in any market, really, with rates so high, and people so fragile in terms of what the market's going to do and housing market and real estate prices. I think it's now more critical than ever 
to do your homework and to uh, really spend a little bit more time to understand and and benefit by getting the best possible deal. And it means shopping around. And this is coming from a mortgage banker who encourages people to do their homework and try to find the best solution for themselves. And part of it is also just speaking to people and getting a comfort level with them. Shopping around means finding the best rate or there's more to it than just the rate. So that's step number one is understanding what is the best rate. So there are rates where you can get at any bank, any broker, whatever it may be, where there's points and no points. So often they may not even tell you about that up front. And in today's environment, most of the loans that are being done by your typical bank and credit union have points. What's a point? A point is typically 1% of the loan amount. So if somebody's borrowing $500,000, the bank will charge an additional $5,000 as a fee to get the rate that they're telling you. So people need to make sure that when they're shopping around, they have a little spreadsheet or, or a piece of paper, something to take notes. What is the interest rate? What is the fees, origination fees, points, if any, application fee, if any, processing fee, if any, and what is the rate lock period? How long will I be locked in for at this rate? When does it get locked in? Mm -hmm. There are some banks out there that offer very aggressive rates. In fact, I got a call from a kosher money client mm -hmm. who was not going to use me because he went to some local bank that was offering one of these first-time homebuyer programs. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to know if I could beat it, which I said right away, uh, it's, it's tremendous. It's, it's, an, it's a great rate. You should definitely continue to work with them. But then he told me that part of his frustration is they've already changed the rate on him twice since he started because his rate's not going to get locked in until the loan is approved. And the bank is now working on 60 days in order to approve mortgages. So here you have... I'm not saying that the bank did anything to mislead him, mm -hmm. but the market's very volatile. So they have these rates and two, three, four weeks into the process, things can change. So you need to know when does my rate get locked? What credit score do I need? And what happens if I don't close on time? So these are all very important questions that I would say even more than what you'll see online. There's a lot of people who are Googling information out there, a lot of resources out there. But... Nothing will replace speaking to a professional who can give you the 10 things that you need to know for your circumstances that nobody will also tell you. And even if they don't get the deal out of it, at least that's my attitude. I actually got a call from somebody on Friday who spoke with me in 2016. We had a long conversation and I didn't even remember, but I took notes and I have it. And he said, look, you, you weren't able to help me, but you told me what I should do and how I can do it. And I ended up doing it. And I told you that the next time I'm ready to do something, I'll reach out to you. Here he was, years and years later, reaching out just because of honest and, honest and unbiased advice that I gave him that benefited him and had no impact on me. Love it. Love it. So if you're looking for a expert, someone who you can speak to regardless of where you are in your acquisition, look up approvedfunding.com. Tell them your friends at Kosher Money sent you approvedfunding.com slash mortgages. I imagine there's a contact tab, email addresses, even phone numbers. You can call, pick his brain. He's here. He's uh, willing and able, and he'll be able to help you. Uh, Shmuel, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Now back to this week's episode. We spoke about sports gambling. What other addictions come to mind as it relates to money? 
that mm. you've seen over over the years? Well, there's there's sports betting, um, and then there's all the other forms of gambling. So you mentioned with the apps, blackjack and Texas, and um, you know you can play pretty much any game that was typically played in the casinos can be played through technology now as well. Um, so whether it's live in in casinos or or underground parlors, you know, um, or online, um, everything is available. All these games, they're constantly putting out new ones um, and coming up with new variations. So there's what what are the typical games of gambling, and then there are what what are sort of the not so traditional identified gambling behaviors, but can be. They're not necessarily, but they can be, and that would include um, this investments and trading, um, and it would include certain financial markets, like people trading on on the cryptocurrency and the NFTs. And um, there's people uh, will push back when they hear that and say, "Oh, David, you just don't get it. Crypto's not gambling. It's it's." Well, I'm not saying that it is. I think that's an important distinction. I'm I'm not saying that it is gambling. Just like any any viable financial market, how viable that market is today remains to be seen right. as time goes on. But I'm not saying that it is inherently gambling. I'm saying that there is a significant subset of people that will fall into a gambling behavior with mm-hmm. that. Another, this is an important distinction to make. Alcohol is a drug. It's a drug because when you consume alcohol, it changes your mood and your mind. That doesn't mean that if I drink alcohol, I have an alcohol problem or I'm going to become an alcoholic. So then what happens is there's the person meeting the substance or this person meeting the behavior. And it's my relationship with that substance. It's my relationship with that behavior that's going to determine if I develop a problem, how problematic that becomes. So it's not that um, the, the financial market is inherently bad or a problem, any of those markets that I'm mentioning. It's that there are some people that will develop a problematic relationship with those markets. Um, and so I think that that's important to highlight people to know that there are certain risks involved. Generally speaking, the young, younger males um, that will go into these behaviors are going to be more at risk, statistically speaking. Um, we know that developmentally, a person's emotional capacity for reasoning is not fully developed until we're in our mid-20s. Developmental psychologists today consider adolescence to really be over by the mid-20s. You know, we used to look at, you know, you're 18, 19, now you're 20, you're an adult. You're a young adult, but you're an adult. And we still call people at that age young adults. But developmental psychologists look at them as really still being, in a certain way, in that stage of adolescence where they their capacity for, um, for their intellectual reasoning is fully developed, but the emotional reasoning that goes along with their intellectual capacity isn't yet fully developed. So anything that young adults do during that time has particular special vulnerability in the sense that you know it can have long-ranging ramifications for them so yeah to circle back it's not that the market itself is the problem but the person who's involved with the market um, and their relationship that they develop with it and the same thing goes with any gambling behavior that's where the issue is you've mentioned in our pre-discussions the idea of escape escape gambling and action gambling what, what do each of those mean and what's the difference? So in the, in, the, in the gambling industry, there will be different types of gambling behaviors, right? So the action gambling, you know, the person sitting around the blackjack table and there's a crowd of people cheering them on and it's a high stakes game and um, people are just entranced, you know, watching the action. That's an example of an action gambling behavior. Um, 
the the escape gambling will be the person that's potentially just sitting there at the slot machine feeding quarter after quarter and it looks like they're like in a semi catatonic state you know like they're just completely zoned out or they're pressing the button again and again and the beeping and the jingling noises right um and online gambling behavior can mimic a lot of that um there's a numbing there's an escaping there's like a self-medicating quality to that type of behavior the reason why it's relevant is because people will approach gambling and get involved get sort of hooked into the gambling for different reasons in the same way that someone may be hooked into a certain type of substance versus a different type of substance because of the impact that it has on their system so that it's producing for one person a certain type of a stimulation high experience and then for somebody else it's what it's providing for them is much more of a numbing effect um, an escaping effect so basically just to say that gambling has everything for something for everyone you know the people that are seeking that type of thrill experience there's going to be all sorts of gambling behaviors for them and the industry has all sorts of options for the other person as well the person that's seeking that numbing that escaping so much of what's happening at home behind closed doors is more of the escape gambling right a lot of the games and the apps and the online uh behaviors are going to mimic um not necessarily so some of them are going to mimic the the you know the the games that are mimicking the card games might try to make it all exciting with sound effects mm. and you know um other flashy ways of trying to get the person to feel the thrill or the adrenaline rush but but a lot of the games are going to mimic that sort of hypnotic almost kind of just you know the fingers doing this ritualized motion and playing it again and again and repeating it, just getting lost time. There's even a term in the gambling world in the same way that when a person is drinking alcohol to the point where they don't remember any anymore what they said or did during that time period, we call it drinking to the point of blackout. In gambling, they call it brownout, where the person just completely loses track of time, how much money they spent, how much time has gone by. So it, it's a similar kind of an experience. And I should note that there is a communal effect even behind closed doors, given the communities, the chat rooms, things of that nature, where That's right. there it's could a whole be a world. level of action yeah. as well. It's a whole world that you can be a part of, supporting use, you know, that you're participating in, that you're right. a part of. Um, absolutely. So how does someone know the difference between an addiction versus, yeah, I'm just enjoying myself. Mm -hmm. I don't do this often. It's just you know, an escape for lack of a better term, but it's not an addiction. I'm not, I don't have a problem. You know, once in a while I'll play basketball and once in a while I'll, mm -hmm. you know, bet a hundred bucks. Mm -hmm. But is saying no entirely the right answer? How do you, how do you look at all of that? Right. Okay. So I'm a clinician and I'll answer that from just purely from a clinical perspective, right? In other words, morals, values, uh, values and halacha, right? Jewish law aside, just from a technical perspective about how to differentiate. So um, it, it, the, if you look at the diagnostic criteria for whether somebody can meet a diagnosis for compulsive gambling, generally all of the criteria are gonna fall into these two broad categories that we, we can call unmanageability and powerlessness. So powerlessness is looking at did I lose control or to what extent have I lost control over this behavior? So for example, I've, I've betted more money than I, than I intended. I lost more money than I than I really was able to afford. 
Those are examples of powerlessness. Unmanageability are going to be the negative consequences of the behavior, and that despite experiencing these negative consequences, the person is persisting in the behavior, right? Which logically doesn't make sense. You do something, you get your head, your head gets hit hard by the consequence of your behavior. You walk away from that and you say, that's not a good idea. You know, I, I did that once, I sped once, the, the, the cop pulled me over, I'm gonna be careful the next time when I'm driving down that road. Um, sort of like the law of natural consequences. But when a person is beginning to get into that sort of invisible line of problematic gambling or pathological compulsive gambling behaviors, they're, they're not really in the driver's seat anymore of their behavior, very analogous to addiction in general. Um, so so these would be things that would be helpful for a person to really, obviously, they need to be honest with themselves. Have I experienced... Um, behaviors that wound up having negative consequences for me in ways that I don't want to have again? And have I lost money, time, um, in ways that weren't intended? So, so that's sort of in the, on the negative end of it. On the sort of proactive end of it, a person, there are some sort of guidelines that could be helpful for a person. Um, who knows what I'm going to be doing? Is it only myself? Or have I shared this with someone? Um, how much money? am I putting in? What's my game plan? Do I have a game plan? If I have a game plan, how am I going to ensure that I'm going to be successful in my game plan? It used to be not so long ago that I would tell people, if you're going to be going into a casino, um, go in with a certain amount of cash. You should have no other cash or credit cards on you. But these days you don't need cash or credit cards. Your phone has everything in it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's even trickier these days. Um, it's, it's your wallet. It's your credit cards. It's your everything. Just a simple app um, and click of a button and more money has been transferred out of your account you know um, so it's trickier but accountability with self and with others transparency being proactive with the game plan these are helpful things that a person can do do you think the higher cost of jewish living is more of a target on our back we have a, a stronger likelihood to fall in into this trap the amounts of money we're going to bet are larger, or mm -hmm. those two are completely separate from Well, I mean, anecdotally, you know, I, I'll see, we have to be careful not to generalize. And, you know, when we do, when we do research, you mm -hmm. need a very large sample size to be able to really have a reliable number that's representative of the general population. Anecdotally, I could tell you horror story after horror story of people that have, as a, as a result of desperate desperation to cover their bills, to make a chasana, um, a Yerusha, an inheritance that came in um, that they were not really skilled at managing that kind of money. You know, I've, I've seen that, you know, people going through a lot of money really fast and, and absolutely risky investments. Mm -hmm. um, and by the time it becomes known, the money's gone, you know, like a million dollars in three, four weeks kind wow. of thing, wow. you know. Um, so, but these are anecdotal stu right. stories. They're dramatic and they're like, oh my gosh, wow. But I would say in a, in a more reliable general way, it's not so much that I think the risk of these types of gambling behaviors are going to make us more at risk and, and are therefore more prevalent. But there are all sorts of other financial disordered behaviors. And I don't mean that in a, in a 
like an official diagnosis mm-hmm. um, because they're not like official diagnoses, but like in terms of therapy and in terms of people needing intervention with them, there are other problematic behaviors that have to do with money and work. And I think that our community is particularly vulnerable because of the high standard of living and also because of, believe it or not, um, the culture of tzniyas. You know, like we, in America in general, we don't talk a lot about money. We're sort of very private about money. Mm-hmm. I was just recently talking at a conference with a colleague who comes from another country and she was saying that like in my country it's a perfectly normal question when you're schmoozing with someone in the beginning you meet them to say how much money do you make and like that would be seen as like a totally socially off or intrusive question mm-hmm. to ask somebody that you barely know we barely ask questions like that to people that we know intimately right like that's not really generally spoken about or shared about very openly how much money you have how much you have invested right so so I, so there's all sorts of behaviors that are disordered and problematic around money and work, overworking, money obsession, compulsive spending, um, even inappropriate compulsive giving it can be a problem for some people. Um, and there could be, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to give a lot of tzedakah and it's going to Hashem's going to pay me back and it's really beyond the person's mean. Mm-hmm. It could be more out of the, the desire to impress others, put on the big expensive wedding that I can't afford, uh, pay, you know, a big, a big shindik. Um, so we have debting, I think, is, is a significant concern. Um, workaholism in general is, is a big problem in, in our country, and I think particularly in our community. And I think it, it's, it's difficult to, to be healthy and balanced around money and work f- because of the tremendous pressure that we have to earn a lot of money just to be able to survive and pay our bills and everything, and also because of the general culture um, that that is so prevalent, materialism and keeping up with the cones, keeping up with the Joneses. Um, I have about 16 follow-up questions, but yeah. a quick one. If you were advising people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s where Yerusha may soon be something they need to... Mm-hmm. to deal with Mm -hmm. what would your advice or guidance or insights be to them to mentally or even more than mentally prepare for that so that they make the right decisions at a time when they may be dealing with grief that's a great question i think that there are some people that are just good with money you know they're they're well organized they're disciplined they're thought through they have a philosophy they have a clarity they're going to take money and they're going you know that's coming in and they're going to do the same thing that they would have done if they had a windfall at work they're Mm going to do the right thing so to speak the responsible thing i think a lot of other people are not that way and rather than sort of being in denial about that you know i used to joke with my own wife when i was dating her i just need to have enough money in my pocket for a sandwich and a soda at all times but other than that you know i know that it's not a strength money management is not a personal strength of mine i think that's true often for a lot of therapists but um but it, it, we need to know where's our strengths and where's our weaknesses um and especially if we can already anticipate and we can get a little proactive around that to be able to seek out somebody whether it's reaching out to our accountant to recommend somebody if it's not them or a good friend or family member that we know is particularly savvy and reach out and and develop some proactive planning around that otherwise if we don't the money will figure out a way to be spent on its own. You mentioned different categories of financial related disorders slash addiction. You know, this idea yeah. of people that are overgiving, 
right? Let's talk a little bit more about overgiving and and this idea of tzedakah or even overspending to keep up with the cones. Is that something that everyone or most people are suffering from so that it's important for them to be aware? And if just a subset of people are dealing with that issue, what are things they can do to overcome that? Mm -hmm. So I I like to look at everything as being sort of like conceptualizing everything as like on a spectrum Mm -hmm. so that um, it isn't just a black or white, yes or no, I have this problem or I don't, because it sort of boxes everything either into a problem or out. I don't have any issue. Um, I think it's much more useful to look at it like it's on a spectrum. Where am I on the spectrum? And everybody has a relationship with money. So when I say that everybody has a relationship with money, obviously we all need money and we use money. But we also have a relationship with money in the sense that it means things to us psychologically and emotionally. And what can really be helpful for us to consider, and we don't necessarily need to go to therapy to do that, although for some people that really is useful. And I will also say as an aside, out of all the topics that are typically talked about in therapy that people go for therapy for, money and the money-related dynamics are the least addressed and least talked about. I think that they really are under-addressed in therapy. To have a therapist comfortable enough to ask these sort of questions and to hear where is there a source of significant stress or struggle or dysfunction for a person's life as it pertains to their relationships to money and work can really uncover some pretty important, valuable therapeutic themes. Um, So it could be helpful if somebody's in therapy and they haven't yet explored that to, to be aware of that and to say, you know, that might be really really relevant for me my in terms of my own stress in terms of my relationship differences that i'm having with my partner around that my spouse so um so if we consider things on a spectrum um there could be the person that's at a real extreme obvious situation where they're like spending way beyond their mean and it's obvious that there's a problem but what about the person that um is just stressed about it they really feel a pressure um they have a sense of shame or inadequacy for themselves in not being able to provide in the way that somebody else in shul did or the way that their neighbor or their sibling did. I hear in my room, I'll hear tremendous pain about a family, a close family member that's more affluent Mm. and um, that they're able to provide certain experiences for their family that they can't provide and the feeling of inadequacy. And um, so it may not actually translate into overspending but it could translate into significant stress and internal dysfunction. And I think that these are things that um, they don't necessarily get resolved or go away on their own. So just having the awareness that these are things worth exploring and understanding, I think is really valuable. A quick break from this week's episode to tell you about our newest sponsor, Infinity Land Services. If you visit ilstitle.com, you'll see all about them. They are the real estate transaction champions. If you're looking for a story, drama, things of that nature, they're not the company for you. They are seamless. They are professional. They're quick and to the point. They have the experience, decades of it, for your real estate transactions. So I highly encourage you to visit ilstitle.com. You'll learn all about what they do, their services. If you watch this video on YouTube, you're listening on a podcast app. Congratulations, you are one of the many who listen there. But if you go to YouTube, they have a really cool commercial at about this timestamp in the video. Um, It's clever, it's cute, we love them. Infinity Land Services, 
ilstitle.com, real estate transactions, a title without the drama. You mentioned overworking. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about overworking. I'm sure this applies to so many people. I know sometimes myself, I feel like I'm overworking and I'm in the office 7.30 and I'm like, why am I still here? What am I doing? Mm -hmm. Where are my priorities? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure you see a lot of that. Is that just a byproduct of today's times, you know, inflation and the need to, to drive more? So as much as you say, oh, yeah, yeah David Cohn said that, you know, overworking, but I got to make ends meet. So sure. call it whatever you want. Sure. And it could be unhealthy. But unless you are going to give me money, I got to sure. make sure I got food on the table. Sure. Um, I mean, the first thing is to be able to talk about this without it conveying any sort of sense of superiority or judgment, like mm -hmm. as if I'm above that or as if, you know, we're not supposed to struggle with stuff like that. Like, I think it's really important to put straight out that like we can all relate to these kind of struggles one way or another. And it doesn't in and of itself mean we have a problem or an issue, but a conversation like this can be an opportunity for a little bit of reflection and soul searching for ourselves, like keeping ourselves. Um, I have a meditation teacher who uses the term wobble. And she says, you know, we're always wobbling as human beings and our goal is to wobble less. I think that's really a fantastic way of approaching this. It's not, we're, we're never going to be like perfectly balanced and perfect at anything, including our relationship with money and work, but we can wobble less. We can notice when we're wobbling much more, when we're much more out of sync. And I, th I think that we go through times in our life due to many different um, variables that we might be wobbling more around work or around money during those times than other times. So just knowing that and okay. Um, I, I often tell clients, imagine your life is like a pizza pie and you're going to divide your life into segments, into pizza slices. So you have your physical health, you have your mental and emotional health, you have your spiritual and religious health, you have your family health, you have your social life, your friends, you have your recreational health, what you do for fun, hobbies, interests, enjoyment, you have your finances and your work. If you're in school and you're younger, you have your education. And you could now divide up the pizza pie right now, what's a snapshot of your life? Like, how are you going to divide? Where, where are the bigger slices than the others? Mm -hmm. And almost always when we do an exercise like that, we're going to see that there are some pizza slices that really should be bigger. So then it just allows us, it's an invitation, like, okay, is there some change that I can make? And it isn't necessarily some grand practical change as much as like regrounding ourselves, like you said, like, oh, you know, this is also important to me. And I've been sort of off track with that. So I think that's incredibly useful. I love the wobbling analogy. I find that myself, I meet a therapist, it's a 20 minute check-in once a month. And you know, every three to four months, I tend to wobble towards one side and she sort of just brings exactly. me back. So exactly. We're all vulnerable to those, to our own particular wobbles, exactly. Though I wouldn't have picked up on it had I not had that outside view. And I think therapy as a whole gets a you know very binary you're either crazy or you're not yeah. developed from years of stigma and we're making progress with all mm -hmm. that. But even just having that check-in at this point, you know, she guides me on saying, hey, looks like you're not exercising as much as you used to and that might be having an impact on your weight or that might be having a, an impact on your mental health and, you know, you're, you're saying yes to too many things, you know, like things that if someone stopped you and, and said, give me your schedule, tell me what you're doing, 
you would be able to see it clearly, but we're all living within it day right. to day. So right, right, we get lost in our trance of everyday living. Inevitably, they're one of the most I consider groundbreaking studies that have been done in that informs mental the field of mental health is that they they found that a person's physical health, a person's sleep, a person's nutrition, and in and of themselves are significant predictor, predictors for the level of a person's emotional health and psychological health. And these are just basics. Like you, you would imagine that's not what you go to therapy for. You go mm-hmm. to therapy to talk about your childhood and, you know, this and that. But like I focus in on that very often, almost probably every session with clients. Like, so what's going on, you know, with the particulars around your physical health and, you know, your nutrition and... You know, are you doing something like just taking some quiet time, whether it's formal meditation practice or just a little bit of a break, you know, a mental break? These things are huge and um, they make a big difference. For those listening, and if we can impact even one life, I think it would be tremendous. There are those listening that have heard the years of negative connotation as it surrounds therapy, Mm -hmm. right? Even speaking to someone, it's my life. Oh, you go, you're crazy. Um... I'm not even talking about medication psychiatry. I'm just Mm -hmm. talking about therapy, talking to somebody um, and obviously finding the right person is Mm -hmm. a challenge. And, you know, if someone doesn't find the right fit right away, they might give up. Discouraging. Getting someone to say, hey, let me make a phone call. And the people at Relief are amazing. You call up Relief and we'll put them in the show notes Mm -hmm. um, to try to find you the right fit faster rather than... um, it taking a couple of tries. What's your message to people? Um, and we're not pushing people to your practice, so they shouldn't think that you're inherently biased. But what 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 can we tell them to even motivate one person to pick up the phone or send an email to reach out to get help they need? And regardless whether it's financial related or any any sort of therapy. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Good question. And this was a question. We didn't have it on our list. It wasn't here. But I think it's so important because a lot of the help we've given to people, we don't even know, right? Someone's giving mice or someone got health insurance, life insurance. We'll just hear little snippets of it. So I would imagine people are more introverted when it comes to therapy. So we might not even hear the benefit of what this conversation could do. But if we can even change one life, that's potentially a family and generations. This is what comes to my mind in the moment. You know, and I'm sure on the way home, I'll think of four really awesome Mm -hmm. things I should have said. Um, But this is what comes to mind in the moment. I think we are all, and I'm generalizing, so everyone forgive me for that. But I think it's just to drive home a point. We are all more lonely as human beings than we really should be. And then and that we really can afford to be. Now, I don't mean to say that we don't have friends or that we don't have loved ones or that we don't have meaningful or satisfying connections. But even with all that, most of us are still walking around more lonely than we should, than than is good for us. Therapy is an opportunity. It can be seen as an opportunity for people to be able to share more intimately and to have a connection, even though obviously it's formal and you're making an appointment and you're paying somebody and they're doing their job. But that doesn't take away from the fact that it can be a genuine, meaningful connection and relationship with someone where it's an opportunity for me to, to hear myself and to be heard by another person, to be seen, to be heard and to be seen. We all need that more than more than anything, you know, um, before we started this, when we were schmoozing, I had asked you, you know, what's 
what's one of the worst uh, things that we come up with in our legal system as a punishment for people? And the answer is solitary confinement, right? You walk around on the streets of Manhattan and it looks like it's busy and everybody is in the company of other people, but we're all just living our own lives. Generally way too stressed, generally way too overextended, legitimately so, with just what life has to demand on us. And it's just an opportunity to be able to sort ourselves through and breathe and just show up. Our body is sitting on the chair in the room and the rest of us can show up, catch up a little bit. I think that that it's hard to put a price tag on that and what that could do for us. I want to talk about the relationships or what happens to people's relationships when they fall into a category where they're suffering some financial disorder, right? Whether it's gambling, playing the markets, some unhealthiness as relates to overworking, Mm -hmm. overgiving, overspending. Mm -hmm. Um, What happens to their personal relationships, family, friends, the workplace? What do you got? Okay. So uh, one of the major ripple effects and negative consequences of these types of behaviors are going to be on people's personal relationships. And these behaviors can absolutely wreak havoc. You know, oftentimes the the first phone call that's going to come into the therapist isn't going to be by the person with the problem. It's Mm. going to be by the family member, you know, either an adult child of the person or the wife or husband um, of the person with the problem. And um, they may have, there may have been a secret for a long time. You know, I just found out that my husband um, uh, has a tremendous amount of credit card debt, not just on his own name, but on my own and on each of our children's. Mm-hmm. You know, I just the world sort of caving in around someone. I just found out that our house is in forfeiture because of the amount of debting or gambling behavior that um, my spouse racked up. And now we're literally about to lose our house. And these are horrible phone calls to get people are in active trauma you know shocked um and uh, then there are situations where it's not a secret and there are concerns um even now as i speak there are some phone calls i need to return from family members that have reached out related to um concerns with gambling behaviors from family members um so it may not be a secret that's sudden and that's just co- just just com- coming up, but there's a sense of powerlessness of like, what am I supposed to do? How can I control another person's actions? Um, and there could be this overreaction, not uncommon, of attempting to control and threaten, um, which we know is not very effective, doesn't really work. So people need support and guidance in those moments. First of all, a lot of validation and understanding Uh, just empathic understanding of what they're going through, normalizing for them their feelings and their fears and their concerns, and then also some guidance about the way to interact with their loved one in a way that will keep the door open for a conversation, in a way that might keep the door open for them to come in together with you for help. Um, There are books, there are good books on that topic, and there are good therapists that can help people and walk them through this very painful time. What can we do as a society to combat the messaging and the over messaging of these new apps these new technologies these new methods the proliferation of 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 sports gambling what can we do as a society um schools families to be overactive right i I don't think it's enough to just be um reactive reactive right what can we do what would you like to see our communities doing so that 
we look back in 10 years and we overcame the challenge without it becoming too much. So before we spoke about the, the, the benefit of therapy potentially being a place where a person can be seen and heard to combat sort of that ordinary loneliness or isolation that I think people have, even, even just regular, normal functioning people like you and I, um, and I think that this is really a, the same kind of, of question. When kids are connected and they feel connected with the adults around them, their teachers, their parents, their family, then they will, it's like a, it's like a built in, it's not a guarantee for anything, but it's like a built in force, force field around them. That's protective in nature. So I think that, um, there's all these prevention initiatives around education and letting people know, and there's value to it to a certain degree. But more than the information, more than the education is how do we, how do we cultivate, how do we nurture, how do we sustain, how do we grow real meaningful connection with our children. So we're in a society where there's more connection than ever through the internet, right? We, we seemingly are more connected than ever, and we're less connected than ever at the same time distracted and, connection yeah and 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 the connection is not um on the level that real sustainable connection needs to be especially for children growing up they need real person to person face to face in the room connection and we can all myself included better ourselves in that way you know show up be present put away the phone um come home and leave it in the car or take it out only you know, at pre-selected times. These are things that are a real challenge for, I think, many, many of us. Um, and then there's the demands on our time in general. So like really f fighting against balancing everything that we have going on in our lives with connection. Let's end on a super positive note. Does, is there a story that comes to mind that someone who had a challenge in some of the arenas we discussed today, um, what comes to mind? I want to hear a, a story of someone that maybe was down in the dumps and, and I don't want people to, to hear this and think that if they're going through something, it's, you know, it's impossible to overcome. Would love to hear something tangible that mm -hmm. comes to mind. So I'm mean, the first thing I want to say, just to stay down in the dumps for a minute to, to, yeah, sure. to clarify the seriousness of this is that gambling in particular, um, has, um, a real concern for people that are suffering from compulsive gambling that are at increased risk for suicidality and having uh, thoughts about, you know, everything is lost, all is lost, all is hopeless. Um, and this is a real concern. So I would say the, the first thing is if somebody's actually struggling and you're having thoughts like that, I, I just want to speak directly to you for a moment. And you should know that there is help. And there's, the, there's a gambling hotline that's available 24 seven and there are mental health referral services and there are people out there and whether it's dealing with practically with the financial stru struggles and predicament or the behaviors and the patterns, all is never lost, all is never hopeless. And it's important to know that. And I just want to name that first. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to give only a story of somebody who was like down in the dumps and so desperate. Like at some point, desperation can drive a person to go for help. I, I'd much rather celebrate also or highlight, I should say, also the stories of people that had concerns for themselves about the amount of time that they were spending, the amount of money that they were spending, the patterns that they found themselves getting into. Um, I had somebody once come to me uh, I, it was probably about April time, 
And I asked him why now. And he said to me, the summer's coming and I don't want the summer to be like the other summers. Mm. And the summer was party time for him. The family was away upstate and it was just an out of control experience for him. And he began to realize over time that like, I'm functional, my life is functional, but like I'm concerned that like this is, I'm not turning into a version of myself that I'm happy being and, and seeing myself in the mirror. And I, I thought that that was so incredibly, you know, moving. Here he is seeing the future before it's happening and saying, let me get a handle on this for myself before Courageous. it goes there. Courageous and insightful and really honest. Mm -hmm. um, so so there are stories like that, I think, are tremendously empowering and, and supportive. We, at any point, whenever we sort of open our eyes to where we're, we're at in our own life and say, okay, Atkan, you know, right now, now's the time. There's a, a book that was written uh, that studied alcoholics that are sober either minimum of five or ten years, I don't recall. They call them the masters in recovery in the book. And they recovered in all sorts of different ways. 12-step recovery through their faith tradition, through different types of therapy. And the author of the book wanted to figure out what's the common thread among all these people. How did they successfully get and sustain uh, sobriety for themselves? And the one thing that the author was able to find was that at some point, each of them reached this internal state all for different reasons, some of them for like a lot of dysfunction or pain or consequences, and others not so. But they all reached this point in their life where they said, okay, that's it, I'm making a shift. We can all make that determination. And then people can think to themselves, yeah, but I did that already last year. Mm. The Elul thing, right? I did that last Elul, I did that last year. I already made that promise to myself. Okay, so we make it again, we recommit again, and we try again, and we reach out for help. And we ask ourselves, how did I do it last time? What was successful? What worked for myself? What, what did I not do yet? What might be something that I'm willing to try this time around that I hadn't done yet last time? So I, I just want to highlight those as being particularly, um, I think those are for me more um, what stand out as like the meaningful takeaways for people than like the story of someone whose life was completely down in the dumps and they lost their house and they almost lost their marriage and now they're doing amazing. We don't have to wait you know i think more people will listen to a message like that and say well but that's not me so that mm. doesn't speak to me right it's more relatable yeah love it thank you so much for taking the time we it's appreciate my it pleasure well that's a wrap hope you enjoyed our fantastic episode on gambling something tells me we're going to be revisiting this topic in the near future we want your suggestions so visit livinglechaim.com Click on the suggestion tab, feedback tab, whatever you got, send, a, send it our way. If you want more on this particular topic, get ready because Mishpacha, yes, Mishpacha, in their Money Talks column will be featuring bonus content related to this topic. So pick up a Mishpacha magazine, visit mishpacha.com on the web, you'll see more content related to this episode other episodes they're going to be pumping out content and we're excited about that collaboration we're also working on our kosher money event so if you want information about our first ever event or if you're listening to this in two years maybe we have massive conferences at that point shoot us an email hi at livinglechaim.com you'll find our conference schedule our event schedule we're doing so much with living smarter jewish if you're not familiar with Living Smarter Jewish, visit livingsmarterjewish.org. Literally, stop what you're doing, visit them. They have guidance, they have coaches, they have information, they have 
so much there that you can consume and get the help you need. And even if you're in a position where maybe you're not in debt, but you just want to get things in order, they have advice and the people for you. So visit livingsmarterjewish.org. We cannot do this without our sponsors, kolelchabad.org slash koshermoney. Give what you can. Help Israel's neediest. If you're in the market for a mortgage or have any questions related to your home or a potential home, real estate, etc., hit up Shmuel Shaiwitz over at approvedfunding.com slash mortgages. He is awesome. He's very insightful. Hit him up. And, of course, our newest sponsor, Infinity Land Services. If you're looking for a real estate transaction without the story, without the drama, you need Infinity Land Services on your side. Visit ilstitle.com, Infinity Land Services. They are there for you. So we covered our sponsors. We covered our collaborative partners. And we hit up livinglachaim.com. There's so much for you to consume. Check out our other videos. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform, head over to YouTube, subscribe there. You can see all of this and more. My brother has many different podcasts for you to enjoy. Inspiration for the Nation, That's an Issue, Not Your Typical Podcast with Charlene Aminoff, and so much more bonus content on the YouTube channel. We're also working on special shorts, which you'll see right here and across the web. Until next week, keep your money kosher. I'm out. Living L'chaim.